This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Good morning and welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday for our 67th consecutive show dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. This show also marks an anniversary. It is our 12th anniversary of being on the air here at WTIC News Talk 1080. Uh, so over the course of the past 12 years, many people have been instrumental in getting this show on the air, uh, particularly Gene Sheehan, who is a good friend and someone who really brought our show from where we were in New London at WXLM and introduced it to Steve uh, Salhini, uh, and Ray Dunaway, and Janine Lee, uh, all of whom really helped us get on the air and have kept us on the air over these past 12 years. I also want to thank by name Amy Ashton and Jeff Chandler. They've been in charge of sales and marketing. Shows don't stay on the air unless you have support, and they have gone out and beaten the bushes for that support. And then there's Joey Burgoyne, who's been our producer and really helped keep the show moving along. And then a series of people. We had Ryan, Mike, Matt, Anthony is now uh, our person on the uh, on the board who have done great work for us over the years. Um, our guests over the years have been phenomenal, and we hope to continue bringing you guests with good information. And naturally, I need to thank my family for their support. Uh, throughout these 12 years. Um, our guest today is Mr. Eric Arlia. Now, many of you remember him. He's the Senior Director of System Pharmacy at Hartford HealthCare. He was just on in September, and I brought him back because we really need to discuss pediatric vaccination, right? That's the big deal right now. Getting kids scheduled, uh, when they should be scheduled, the ages, what's the dose, what's the upside, what's the downside? So we're going to talk to him a lot about pediatric vaccination. But another topic that came up is the new Pfizer antiviral medication. And this new antiviral medication known as Paxlovid uh, may be another game changer in fighting this pandemic, along with the Merck pill. So those are waiting for approval. So it's going to be great to chat with him about that. The statistics. You know, we go over these every week, and I think it's important for us to get a grasp. So far, we have lost over 753,000 Americans to the COVID-19 pandemic. In Connecticut, we've lost over 8,700 lives. But one number I haven't brought to you and, and should is the global death rate is over 5 million right now. And it's important for us to grasp that this is a global disease. That's why it's a pandemic. And unless we solve this problem worldwide, 
we're going to still be dealing with it for a long time. Our national positivity rate is 5.2%. But here in Connecticut, we've kept it below 2%. It was 1.82% as of yesterday. And that's important. Why is it so low here in Connecticut as opposed to other states and the country? Well, 71% of Connecticut residents are fully vaccinated as opposed to only 59% in the rest of the country. That's an important factor because it plays out specifically to our hospitalizations and people missing work and eventually impacts our economy. One of our problem areas has been Wyndham County and New London County. For some reason, um, their rates are higher and their vaccination rates are lower. And uh, I spoke to my colleague, uh, Dr. Raj Kumar, and he was lamenting. I mean, just yesterday we were on the phone and he had two people in the emergency room, not vaccinated, on high dose oxygen, getting ready to be intubated, and were not vaccinated. And it's frustrating for physicians because now we're dedicating more resources and these people are facing big problems. Even in my office, what we do is uh, if someone's coming to me for a procedure, we perform a test. They have to have a test within 72 hours of the visit with me. And uh, it's surprising that over the course of the past two weeks, how many people have tested positive. So these positive patients are out there and actually spreading the virus unless they become aware of it and quarantine appropriately. So we've made good headway, but we've still got a battle in front of us. This day in medicine, November 6th, 1880. Uh, I, I want to remember this because the French army surgeon, Charles Alphonse Lavaran, he was the first person to observe the malaria parasite in human blood. And it's interesting. So with malaria, we all know it's associated with mosquitoes, primarily in Africa, the Caribbean, Central America, South America. But I think the things we didn't know that it infects 290 million people per year. And approximately 400,000 people die every year from malaria. We still don't have a vaccine for that. We have treatments. We have ways of prophylaxing. When I go to Haiti, I take a prophylaxing medication, chloroquine, for it. But it's important. What happens is a mosquito with this parasite will bite a human. It spreads in the bloodstream. It affects the liver. Then a mosquito may bite that human, and that mosquito would not have malaria, but now have it because they bit the human who has it and now spread it again. And the reason I bring it up is because when you look at this, you realize how deadly malaria is even today and the importance of really controlling the uh, population 
and coming up with effective treatments for malaria uh, because those are staggering, staggering numbers. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back, and we're going to talk a little bit about one question I had last week, which was, can you discuss Colin Powell and how COVID affected him and eventually caused his demise? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about the spread of misinformation and disinformation uh, on the Internet and how it may be affecting all of our listeners. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And a question came up from a listener, and, and I want to repeat for everybody to know that if you have questions for me, either we could take them live on the air or I will get to those questions in a future program. If you reach me at info at alessimd.com, I'm happy to discuss those. And one listener asked that I discuss uh, the situation with Colin Powell. As many of you know, he passed away on October 18th. I don't really need to go into his CV and resume um, as really an outstanding American patriot. Um, He died of COVID-19, but he had had been diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma is a cancer that affects the bone marrow, and it affects the ability for that bone marrow to produce cells called plasma cells. Plasma cells are an intricate part of our immune system because they produce the antibodies we need to fight infection. So as a result of multiple myeloma, patients become immunosuppressed. Eventually, these cancer cells mutate and they become tumors and they affect the production of other cells. So they start taking up space in the bone marrow so you're not producing red blood cells and other cells you need to live. The treatment for multiple myeloma is a variety of chemotherapies, um, but also stem cell transplant. So basically replacing the bone marrow with healthy cells. And hopefully you've gotten rid of all of the cells that were cancerous. Now, in the case of COVID, as you all know, when you get an infection or when you get a vaccination, you are triggering that immune system to produce antibodies and specific antibodies against the spike protein on the COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So what has happened with Uh, General Powell was that COVID was able to overwhelm his system because he was unable to produce sufficient amounts of antibody against the virus. He was vaccinated. But again, even with the vaccine trying to spark and light off that bone marrow, he could not produce enough antibody. This is the situation that we are all trying to avoid by being vaccinated. We are trying to protect those 
who cannot be sufficiently vaccinated or received a vaccine. There are many children with blood-borne problems, these blood dyscrasias, as we call them, who get vaccines, but they are not as effective. So only by getting to a herd immunity, only by getting to a sufficient level of immunity for the entire population can we protect these other people. And that is why I have been very clear that getting vaccinated is a step towards good citizenship. It is a model for good citizenship, for doing what is kind to others. It's ironic that someone like General Colin Powell, who dedicated his entire life to protecting America, was sadly not protected by Americans. And that saddens me. But possibly that's a lesson to others. One of the other things is we see a lot and we hear the terms misinformation and disinformation. And, and you have to understand that spreading falsehoods on the Internet has become a whole industry. And when people are afraid of something, you become more susceptible to the disinformation that's out there on the Internet. It's also known as a psychological principle. What you see first is what you believe the most. And that's what these actors capitalize on. Let's start with misinformation is just incorrect information. But it's not known to the person who's spreading it. Because these people actually believe this false information. So some of the emails I get uh, from people and, and people I talk to, I'm sure they are not trying to undermine the government. But they just believe this misinformation that's out there and they're spreading it. On the other hand, with disinformation, this is spread by a variety of actors who deliberately spread information that is false. Right? So they want to do this so they could accomplish another goal, usually political or some social goal of theirs. And we've been reminded that there are mechanisms by which our enemies, like Russia and China, are doing this. And they have a formula for doing it. Basically, they have a playbook. What they do is they take information that has a kernel of truth. And usually it's a topic that has generalized appeal to people. It has some anecdotes or stories. I knew somebody who knew somebody. Or they're just false studies that were either never performed or just made up. So they take this kernel of truth and move quickly. Step number two, move as quickly as you can so you could put the fact checkers, the scientists, the people like me on the defensive. Because now we have to disprove something that's false. So once they can do it, they move quickly and get it out there. The third step, step is amplification and sustainment. You need to amplify, you need to get it on as many platforms as you can and sustain it there. 
so you can maintain this false narrative and allow it to spread by the people who are unsuspecting. In the past, years ago, we used to get our news information from just a few sources, trusted sources. Right? You'd have, what, three or four TV stations, a newspaper. You'd devote maybe 60 minutes of your day toward getting news and absorbing that news. Now, there are an infinite sources, and there are people spending much more time trying to get information. So this creates an environment to spread this false information. One example of the playbook has been this issue of the COVID-19 vaccine affecting fertility, right? There was a kernel of information. It was a letter written to a journal in the United Kingdom, a letter, no proof. It was one doctor's thought. He thought that the spike protein looked like another protein on the uterus, wrote the letter. Everyone knows that your fertility is a topic of appeal and could be easily amplified. So they took this kernel of truth with no proof, moved quickly to get it on the Internet as quickly as they could and amplified it. In fact, really, you have more difficulty with getting the virus and that affecting your fertility than you do from the vaccine. So people need to fear the virus, not the vaccine. You've got the wrong target. And it could affect many people. And we've seen that in the last week, right? We've had Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, a hallowed position. And he's out there believing that the vaccine's going to affect his fertility and he won't have children. So instead, he's opted to lie to the public, lie to his fans by saying he was immunized and going out and infecting other people, his other teammates, the press, and things like that, all because he believed in a falsehood, all because he was gullible enough to fall for this playbook of disinformation. And that's the purpose of our show, in the nutshell, is to answer questions and create a dialogue and a bond, right? I'm a local doctor. I'm here. This is my community. People know me. Patients know me. And they also know that I've been vaccinated. My family's been vaccinated. And this week, my grandchildren will be vaccinated. Do as I do. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Eric Arlia, and we're going to be talking about vaccination of young children ages 5 to 11. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. 
I uh, just want to remind everybody, if you have questions that you want answered regarding your health, whether it be COVID-19 or other, you could reach us at info at alessimd.com. I might as well get to another question while we're here and, and discussing these things. One of the questions um, that has been discussed is uh, from a caller who said they are working in a situation where uh, people can, uh, well, vaccines are mandated, but if, you do, if you're not vaccinated, you have to be tested weekly. And the question is, as a non, as a vaccinated individual, how am I, am I susceptible and is weekly testing sufficient to protect me in the work environment? And it's an interesting question because it depends a great deal on where your work environment is and what it is you do, and obviously your susceptibility to contracting the virus. So in many cases, weekly testing may be enough. But obviously, if you really want to produce a safe environment for employees, you're going to do that by having everyone get vaccinated. Now, the other solution may be these daily home tests where people are able to test themselves at home and verify that they are not contagious with the COVID-19 virus. So in those notes, it's important to really assess where you are. So in answer to that question, you really need to assess, you know, what industry, obviously in the healthcare industry, that's not enough weekly test is not going to be enough and you really want to keep uh, patients and other healthcare workers safe with that i'm told i got a message that uh, mr arlia is ready and on the line eric are you there i can hear you good morning dr alessi sorry for the uh, confusion i know they're doing some renovations at the studio and as many people know i do this broadcast from home so anyhow Let's get right to it, Eric. Thank you for coming on, and thanks for your time today. Um, Overall, where are we at with pediatric vaccination? A lot has changed in the last week. What is the vaccine, ages, all the particulars to this? Sure. So uh, really good week uh, in progress. The final committee reviewed, uh, the ACIP committee of the CDC reviewed, the data and unanimously approved the uh, Pfizer brand COVID pediatric vaccine uh, for all children aged 5 to 11. Uh, That was on Tuesday. Uh, Later Tuesday evening, Dr. Rochelle Lewinsky signed off on it as the director of the CDC, uh, and that enabled um, vaccine providers to begin the process. Uh, Anticipating that this was going to occur, the government and the CDC had begun shipping the vaccine already. So at Hartford Healthcare, we received it on the same day, on Tuesday, as I think many other um, vaccine providers in the state did. So we were able to start immediately. It was nice to have the vaccine in hand as soon as it received final clearance. Uh, so we uh, had a um, ceremonial first, uh, first vaccination on Tuesday night uh, to get things started and to really celebrate, have another moment, um, you know, of Uh, beginning a new age range, and now we're gearing up for um, our big event, which is going to be one week from today on the 13th. When you say your big event on the 13th, what's going to happen there? 
So Harvard Healthcare on the 13th is going to do uh, pediatric vaccine clinics at uh, six different uh, locations in the state um, uh, from noon until 4 p.m. So we will have one in Norwich. We'll have one um, at Hartford Hospital, one in Wethersfield, one in Torrington at Charlotte Hungerford Hospital, one at New Britain at the Hospital of Central Connecticut, and one in Bridgeport at St. Vincent's Medical Center. Uh, so we um, we now have appointments posted um, at our website, harvardhealthcare.org, for parents interested in signing their children up for those um, vaccine appointments. I took a look this morning. Uh, they got posted yesterday. Uh, there's still about 75% of them, right around 1,500 appointments available, scattered throughout those locations that I mentioned before. What do you expect the response to be? I mean, we're hearing all these things that uh, 30, only 30% of parents will bring their children for immediate vaccination. About another 30% are going to sit back and wait. Uh, I don't know what they're waiting, but waiting for their children to become ill or whatever. But um, what, what do you expect the response to be? I, I think we're going to see what we've really seen. At, you know, here in Connecticut, we, we have done it by age range all the way along. And it's been a very predictable pattern. Uh, there is the early, what we call the early adopter phase, which is what I think we're in with pediatrics right now, where there's a lot of demand for the people who have, you know, are strong believers in the vaccine and in the science and in the study of it, and they're eager to get their children vaccinated as quickly as possible. So I think uh, I know some vaccine providers have clinics going today. Uh, I think the early clinics, the ones this week and next week and maybe even into the following week, will fill pretty pretty solidly. Then, you know, we'll enter that period of people who are still thinking about it. Uh, so demand will probably go down but not disappear. Uh, I, I, I know I've seen a lot of the same reports about the percentage. Uh, my hope is that as um, as it starts to happen and as start children around people start getting vaccinated, Maybe now that it's approved, parents have, a, have a, an opportunity to speak to their pediatrician about it. And I'm, um, I'm hoping that more people will get comfortable with it and then continue to schedule those appointments. My impression is, and it's nearly not just for COVID, but for flu as well, children going to school in winter become this reservoir of viral illness, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. <laughs> um, and... Uh, so with increased vaccination now in this age group, is this going to be a really big step forward? I, I believe it will be. I think that this uh, vaccine is very, you know, we, we've studied it now in many different age groups. Um, you know, and the effectiveness of the messenger RNA type vaccines, of which Pfizer is one, are consistently above 90%. Um, again, a lot of it will depend on how, like, how well it's uh, adopted. You know, you need to have a certain percentage of people get vaccinated children in this case for transmission to start to decline. Uh, so a, a lot of it will be related to that. We're also really fortunate here in the state of Connecticut. Uh, as a state, uh, we have a um, relatively high uh, adoption percentage. You know, we, we've consistently been uh, on the high range in the country of people who do get vaccinated. So I think that will give us a little bit of an advantage as we move forward. Let's talk about the safety. Uh, A lot of people now uh, have focused on myocarditis. You're going to get myocarditis from the vaccine. 
And yet the numbers don't support that. So, again, it's one of those things where we talked about earlier in the show, um, our enemies out there and disinformation get a kernel of information and distort it. Can you talk a little bit about the safety of the vaccine and the issue of myocarditis? Sure. Um, you know, I think one thing to keep in mind is that myocarditis is also a side effect of actually getting the um, virus itself. Uh, looking at the, you know, I, I believe in looking at the odds of things. Uh, you know, if you look at the percentage of cases of myocarditis in children versus, um, you know, your odds of getting the virus and possibly getting it as a, you know, as one of the symptoms of it, uh, it's much more likely that that would happen if you become infected. Uh, I think I also think the higher percentage is in the adolescent age range. Uh, I don't even know that it's as big of an issue in the pediatric age range. You know, I think we, we now have the, um, you know, we have the luxury of millions and millions of administration of the vaccine. Uh, you know, we have quite a, a, you know, quite a large percentage of uh, people who have had it. So, you know, our understanding of rare side effects, which really is very hard to, you know, when you start talking about the one in a million level side effects, right. very, very difficult to come up with those in drug studies. You know, we've done some really robust drug studies, you know, in the tens of thousands with the COVID vaccine. But if you think about a one in a million adverse effect, that's going to be really hard to see even in a study that large. So I, I again, I, I think uh, very, very low um, probability of it occurring, probably not even as, as high in the, you know, the five to 11 as it is in the 12 to 17. And again, the same thing along with everything else can happen if you actually get the um, COVID uh, illness itself. And I don't want to estimate, underestimate the importance of this vaccine in children with respect, not just to school, but sports. A lot of people hold up mm -hmm. sports and other activities. The Big East just came out this week, which is the uh, conference that UConn is in. And they've just said flat out, if you don't have enough players because of COVID, you forfeit the game. It's not a makeup right. game. It's a loss. So people want to do that to support their team, obviously, and to stay healthy. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. So we know that vaccination is the best way to approach this problem, right? Don't get the mm -hmm. virus. You don't get the right. virus. You don't get myocarditis. You don't get sick. You don't miss school. But we are now having in our hands some treatments. So let's talk a little bit about them. Uh, we have mm -hmm. the Merck drug, and now Pfizer has come out with an oral antiviral drug as far as treatment. Can you talk a little bit about the Pfizer drug, um, Paxlovid, and how it compares to the Merck drug? Yeah, uh, really exciting. You know, it looks like we really are on the cusp of having or one and possibly two oral agents. Uh, we, right now, we've only had the intravenous agents as treatments, which have a lot of logistical barriers. Uh, you know, the studies that have come out in the last few weeks, you know, the uh, Paxlovid, which is the Pfizer product, definitely was, you know, very encouraging at 89%, um, likely to decrease uh, hospitalization or death. Um, Malapiravir, the one from Merck, uh, came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, at least the press release on it, um, with about a 50% reduction. I'm not going to get too hung up on those percentages just yet. I, I think w what I'm encouraged by when I look at these two drugs is that they actually don't 
work the same way. They actually have different mechanisms of action. So not to get too technical, but having two drugs on the, on the horizon that don't work exactly the same way, uh, Pax, Paxlovid is a what's known as a protease inhibitor, uh, which really stops the replication process uh, by, you know, not allowing the virus to cut the RNA in certain places, whereas the malapiravir uh, is more of a, mutate, uh, a mutation-inducing drug. Uh, so two different mechanisms of action, in my mind, give us, um, you know, less likelihood of resistance issues occurring in the future as we have more people uh, taking the meds, if um, one particular mechanism of action happens to work better than another, even regardless of what we saw in those early studies, uh, you know, we have two different options there of, of a possible highly effective medication. You know, those studies, you know, when, when you have results like you saw in those studies, oftentimes they'll cut the study short, um, you know, for ethical reasons, because, you know, you're seeing such a dramatic improvement with the drug. So, uh, I, I think it'll be interesting uh, as they start to be used in therapy. I would I would expect both of them will probably get emergency use authorization by the end of the year. So you know we'll enter 2022 with two two oral agents probably here in the United States. I know England already approved malapiravir this week uh, for emergency use. We'll have two different um, oral drugs, two different mechanisms of action, and we can see how it goes. I guess the last thing I would say about those drugs, much like pretty much every antiviral drug out there used to treat an acute illness, like Tamiflu is probably the one people are most familiar with uh, for um, seasonal influenza. All of them work better the earlier you start the therapy, and it's really no different with these two. So the logistics of getting um, people infected with the virus, the uh, oral meds as quickly as possible, will be very important. You know, and as a, as a pharmacy leader in our pharmacy system, I'll be very, you know, I'm watching for information on how the government is planning to distribute it. And we really want to try to figure out ways to uh, really quickly get people who qualify for the drug, whatever the qualifications end up being, as quickly as possible. So here's a thought. I mean, if we're to follow that course of action, someone comes down with symptoms, and as you and I both know, there's a lot of overlap between COVID-19 and the flu. And you suddenly come down with these symptoms in, you know, first quarter of next year. One of the limiting factors I found has been testing. And, mm -hmm. and my question for you is, are we doing enough testing? How are we going to know if it's COVID within a short enough period of time to start these therapies? Yeah, I so I don't know the answer for sure, but I would I would I would expect that you're going to need to have a, a confirmed positive test sure. to be eligible to get it. So access to testing, you know, it's something that we've we've had all along. There have been periods of time where you know it's been needed in higher volumes than other times. Um, I think we're going to have to really monitor that, monitor that closely. Uh, if this becomes something of more importance. Uh, then, you know, there may be a need to increase the amount of testing capacity around the state. And hopefully, if that is how it kind of all plays out, hopefully the providers of testing will be able to accommodate an increased capacity. Do you think the home testing is the key right here now? I mean, I don't we can know get that. If, yes, I, I think, you know, those aren't quite as accurate as the tests that you can get at a, at sure. a center. I, I think a lot of it will depend on how the emergency use uh, gets written. Uh, will those be an acceptable? Will a positive from those be acceptable? Uh, or will it need to be a positive PCR test? 
I think that I think we're going to have to wait and see, you know, how the FDA decides to give us guidance on it. Getting back to Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, when we get to it's a mouthful. When when we look at those drugs and the studies done, one of the things I always question and I tell people on this program to question is sample size. Right. I mean, the Pfizer drug, 774 people. I mean, even right. the, the Merck drug, these were small sample sizes. Right. I, do you have enough confidence in that sample size to draw conclusions that it's 90% effective or, in the case of Merck, 50% effective in keeping people out of the hospital? Yeah, I don't, that's why I said earlier, Dr. Alessi, the, 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 the 50 versus 89% I'm not convinced of yet. I, okay. I think they demonstrated that they have a strong impact on serious illness. Uh, I think, like I said earlier, because they have two different mechanisms of action, I think as the sample size gets bigger, we may find that one works better than the other. Those sample sizes may or may not have been large enough to give us that level of detail. But it's exciting to have two different ones that work two different ways. Um, and again, you know, part of the reason the sample size is so small is because they were so effective. Um, you know, the, the study coordinators had to, you know, close it out a little bit earlier than, you know, the size that they had planned on. Are these drugs going to be free, the same way monoclonal antibodies are? My understanding is they will start out as free. The government will purchase an amount. Uh, we're interested in hearing how they will distribute that. You know, most everything we've dealt with have been things that hospitals handle. This is more of a pharmaceutical. You know, we have pharmacies in our sure. health system, retail pharmacies. Uh, will be it'll be interesting to see the details on them. At some point, they will, I'm sure, no longer be free. You know, and that you know that raises a whole other concern. I know the malapiravir is probably going to be about $700 for a course of therapy. I haven't seen any cost estimates for Paxlovid yet, uh, but I'm sure it'll be in the same range. It will not be an inexpensive way to treat, and that's why, you know, treating the right people at the right time, i.e. as early as possible in the course of their illness, is going to become very important to keep the, the cost of, of managing COVID uh, as, as under control as possible. Speaking to that issue, we only have about a minute left. Is Luvox going to work? I mean, an inexpensive antidepressant drug, um, will that work? Yeah, I, I, this is kind of a good you know thing to compare this to. So the Luvox, I, I don't think we have enough information yet. I think we have uh, you know some interesting some interesting results from a study done in Brazil. Um, you can understand why you know, you know countries that may not have the resources the United States has are interested in finding drugs that might be um, somewhat effective. Um, in reducing the symptoms of COVID. You know, Luvox has anti-inflammatory properties. They can't really say for sure exactly how it reduces COVID, but it's likely it, many people get very sick with COVID. It's because their immune systems have an out of control response to the virus as it you know, replicates rapidly in their body. Uh, so, you know, oftentimes drugs that can reduce that um, cytokine storm, as they call it, uh, can help people from not being seriously ill. I, I, you know, we don't have like a major drug company behind this to, to do the kinds of studies we have with the other sure. drugs we've talked about. But, you know, the world uh, needs to come together and continue to study inexpensive medications that are in, um, you know, ample supply. And, you know, for some parts of the world, that might be an answer until some of these other drugs are more available. I would not 
I wouldn't recommend people uh, go out and take it now to reduce COVID symptoms, but definitely warrants more study. Eric, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the information. I apologize for our technical difficulties earlier, but um, that's live radio for you. Hey, listen, (laughs) thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate being on. Thank you. you. Uh, Many thanks to Anthony Dorenzo, who's been on the board today. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing uh, for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, uh, we will be discussing more about the COVID-19 pandemic and approaches to reducing our susceptibility. Next up on WTIC is going to be Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Please remember to help save lives by getting vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.